Father, thank you for your sufficient word. Thank you that you've not hidden yourself from us, but you've revealed yourself to us in your son and your word about him. And thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to meet together, um, to gather, to encourage each other, uh, to get to know you better, to love you more. And so we pray as we look at um, these verses, as we think about this topic, we pray you give us clarity. Um, Safety is a complicated subject in many ways. And so help us to understand what it is you are saying. And would you soften our hearts? Would you open our blind eyes? Would you unstop our deaf ears? And would you speak to us, therefore? In Jesus' name, amen. It's probably obvious to you, but these these talks over this six-week period are all kind of joined up and intermingled. So there are different things that we could have said in different weeks. Um, But one thing we say in one week will impact on the next week, or the previous week even, um, as we're pulling apart these six different threads. Um, In one sense, that is slightly arbitrary. It's just a way of trying to understand the bigger picture. But one of the things we talked about last week, if you remember, was um, this idea of helicopter parenting. That is, remember, in the West, families are getting smaller and smaller, and so we invest more and more into our fewer and fewer children. Do you remember the more intensive long-term goals in mind when it comes to parenting, that kind of philosophy? So how do you get them through university with the best grades to get the best degree, to get the best jobs, to be happy, presumably? At least that's what the West says. And yet a byproduct of that is that, generally speaking, as we saw, responsibility is taken at a later and later age. So we talked about the... um, QLC, this quarter-life crisis that apparently is incredibly common. Three-quarters of 25 to 33-year-olds have experienced this quarter-life crisis. And the the, um, way of explaining it, the quote from the writer was that that dawning realization that you've reached the age by which you assumed you would have it all figured out, only to find that you don't. Of course, one of the consequences of this this parenting, this child-rearing strategy with parents so involved in their kids' lives now can be that the younger generation feels totally and utterly protected the whole time, totally comfortable. They are removed from the messy and painful reality of the world, and that's a natural thing. Of course it is. We have a number of babies currently, um, in our church life, and a number more on the way too. And we want to protect them from pain and brokenness. We do the same for our toddlers. Largely, you want to protect them from that. The speed at which you pick them up when they fall will vary between parents and families, but, of course, we want to protect our children. And yet the danger is, when they get older and older and older, then we still continue to protect them. We still want to make them feel as comfortable as possible. Which then leads to a huge concern for safety that seems to have come through in our current world. And we'll think more about this next week. But particularly as the internet opens up all kinds of potential things, then people don't know what to fear. There's this endless torrent of information. It's in a way that generations didn't experience in years gone by. So online, you can read of something awful that happens or in real time is awfully happening. 
You're exposed to it in a way we never were in previous years. And then you think, well, that could be us. That that could be me walking on that street with that thing happening. And then not just one thing, but the nature of the internet. We scoop all these things from all around the world, and there may be 20 things per day that terrify us because we are exposed to them and aware of them in a way that we wouldn't have been in generations gone by. And that can work its way out in different ways, apparently. So this particular, this iGen generation, which is kind of 23-year-old and down, or, but millennials as well, which, a bit of banter online with this, but I reckon about um, 41 or 42 and down, being most generous, some would say maybe 37 and down. Um, but there's this working out of, of safety. So seatbelts and high-vis jackets according to one study, are very common and popular amongst a younger generation now, more so than in previous generations. There's a desire for people to own Volvos in a way that would never have been there in previous generations. That group is less likely to binge drink now or to smoke marijuana or to get caught up in physical fights. Perhaps unsurprisingly, younger people are now less likely to agree with this statement. I like to test myself every now and then by doing something a little risky. You see the line going down. People are disagreeing with that, or agreeing with that, disagreeing with that. The right way around, isn't it? That is, people are less likely to do risky things now. They are safety conscious and risk averse. And of course, for the most part, that is probably not a bad thing. It's good to be safe. We want people to be safe. Of course we do. But what we're finding in our current culture is this nuance and complexity comes when we're not just talking about physical risk, but actually intellectual, social and emotional risks too. That's the concept that perhaps hit the headlines, or is hitting the headlines week by week. It's led particularly on university campuses to to, um, the creation of safe spaces, which again may well have been very good things, where particularly minority groups can gather without fear of judgment or persecution, where they could be safe. Yet it seems that concept has stretched and broadened to, to protect anyone from any viewpoint that might offend them or stop them feeling safe. There's lots of talk now of trigger warnings. People now, often lecturers, have to warn their classes at the start of the year whether there may be concepts or ideas that, that may make their students feel vulnerable news they don't want to hear, history they don't want to encounter or engage with. And so to stop them from being triggered, then there is information given at the beginning. There are small, low-level words or phrases or ideas that could be offensive to some. These are called microaggressions. Started in the 70s, particularly with discussion of, of race or ethnicity, but that's become far more prevalent in recent years, and it's stretched and grown into all kinds of things. The other response has been to um, disinvite or deplatform controversial speakers. At least twice in the last week in the Oxford Union, um, there's been criticism for their choice of speakers who have been invited. 
It's also live in Oxford because of um, a particular lecturer in the law department. If you were to buy The Guardian this last week, pretty much each day you would read various articles, editorials, comments and letters about this guy. Um, professor um, John Finnis, he's an emeritus professor, law and legal philosophy, he's a Catholic. Um, and he is being uh, hounded um, for the university to get rid of him because of apparent homophobic lecture he gave in 1994 at a university in America. Very well-known university. Various articles that he's written as well. I'm not going to get lost into the complexity of this situation, but a big question that comes out of this is, how does academia work best? Should we have free speech where difficult things are taught, even if they are repugnant things in our current culture? Who gets to decide what is repugnant? Who gets to decide who is a minority, or indeed a minority worth listening to, because some minorities are ignored? Um, one helpful book I found, at least um, largely helpful, for teasing apart some of this complexity that I'd recommend to you, I think, is this book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, if you've not read it, um, which I guess most of you won't, there is an article online, so if you Google that... Um, I think it's uh, the Atlantic or the New Yorker, one, one of the big um, kind of American journals or kind of mainstream journals. You can read some of it there. But the author's argument is an interesting one, and that is we shouldn't avoid things that we don't like or are, are fearful of, but rather we should engage with them in such a way as to make us stronger. And one of the things they talk about is a, a metaphor for this of the peanut allergy. Bear with me. So in 2015, there was a scientific study done um, examining why more and more children seemed to be getting peanut allergies. So it seems to have come from this. Back in the mid-90s, there were about four in 1,000 kids who had peanut allergies. And of course, they reacted very badly to those allergies. And so back in the mid-90s, they began to change the way they dealt with peanuts because reactions were so extreme, then society changed, schools changed. Peanuts were banned from packed lunches. It's, some schools won't let you have peanut butter for your lunch. But then they found by 2008, the numbers had, numbers had tripled to about 14 in 1,000. So there are fewer peanuts, but there were more allergies. And so they, they did a study, well, why is this? Why are we seeing more and more and more peanut allergies, even though there are fewer peanuts out there in the lives of these children? So they got 640 infants um, who were at high risk of getting a peanut allergy. Um, half of them were told to avoid peanuts altogether, and the other half were given a small amount three times a week. And then when the kids turned five, they were tested for an allergic reaction to peanuts. And for those who have avoided peanuts on this side, 17% had an allergic reaction. And for those who had been exposed to peanuts in small levels, 3% had an allergic reaction. And the point is this, our bodies adapt to the environment that, we in, that we're in. We get stronger as we, ex we are exposed to things. And so their point, the author's point in this, is that, and many seem to agree, that teaching our children that being insulted or experiencing pain or, or failing is a harmful thing may actually be a harmful thing in itself. 
if we overly protect our kids, they say, if we coddle them, then perhaps that is actually making them weaker in the long term. They would say playing in the dirt and being hurt is a good thing for us. It is a helpful thing. Perhaps it's more important than we first thought, they would say. What we might need is, rather than avoidance, perhaps a level of exposure therapy, where we just experience a bit and we learn. And they quote from another guy in the book, um, a guy called um, Nassim Taleb. And he wants to distinguish between three things. He wants to distinguish between a, a fragile thing, like a china teacup. You don't give your toddler a china teacup. That is a bad thing to do. There's fragile. Then there's a resilient thing, like a plastic sippy cup much more likely to be given to a toddler. But then he says there is a third category, and that is anti-fragile. Systems that depend upon stress to strengthen them. Stress helps them to learn and adapt and to grow. So our bones and our muscles would be that kind of system. You spend a month in bed, then you go for a run, you'll find it's pretty hard. Your muscles and your bones will weaken. You see, if you avoid hard things, they say, you are less able to cope with them in the long run. Actually, that's a really interesting thing as well. Um, Three years ago, when the the current vice-chancellor at Oxford, Professor Louise Richardson, came into into her position, in an early interview, she said this. um, And it's interesting, she's come under increasing fire, particularly as culture has changed, actually. She seems to have stuck to it largely. But she said this, she said, we need to expose our students to ideas that make them uncomfortable so that they can think about why it is that they feel uncomfortable and what it is about those ideas that they object to. And then to have the practice of framing a response and using reason to counter these objectionable ideas and to try and change the other person's mind and to be open to having their own minds changed. You see what she's saying? She's saying anti-fragile works in an academic environment, at least she thinks. To not do that can leave individuals as fragile. They can struggle, which is why um, many of you, and if I'm still a millennial, then we're often called snowflakes. Each one unique and special, and yet incredibly fragile, so when the heat gets turned up, we can't cope. Now, there are all kinds of ideas there and all kinds of things to wrestle with, um, which is not really the point of this sermon, but... There are things we need to think about, like, if you hear something you don't like, are you really unsafe? Are you really in danger? Or has this idea, this concept of safety, experienced a sort of concept creep? Is, is hate speech really violence? Again, has violence shifted in its, in its um, usage and its meaning? Or why does our culture think that disagreement equals hate? Why can you not disagree with someone without them thinking that you now hate them? There'll be more on that in a couple of weeks. Um, Lots more we could say. Um, Before we jump into the Bible, I wanted to um, just raise one example, which I found very striking. I'm not going to make a huge comment about it, but it kind of solidifies some of these ideas, I think. And it gives us um, at least an opportunity to chew some of these things over, perhaps over the um, coffee afterwards. It's a worked example from 2015 at a university in the States called Yale, probably known to many of you. I remember I was shocked by this at the time. It was around about Halloween, and there was a directive emailed out from the sort of central authorities at Yale. And yet one of the house parents, sorry, the email was to do with what you could and couldn't wear at Halloween. 
what it was legitimate for you to wear and what it was illegitimate for you to wear. We don't want to offend people, they said. One of the house parents at Yale, she emailed her students saying, I'd like you to ignore that email, not because I don't want people to be offended, but because I want you to learn how to engage with each other. I want you to mature and to exercise self-censure. I want you to um, ignore or reject things that, that are troubling. I want you to learn to grow up and to do this for yourself rather than be told what you can and can't do. What happened then was her students um, raised up and called for her resignation, saying that she was not creating a, a safe environment for minority students. One student yelled at this house parent and said, it is your job to create a place of comfort and home for the students who live here. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as a master. She responded and she disagreed. She said it's a place to mature and to develop academically, to which the response was, well, who the bleep hired you? It's not about creating an intellectual space. It's about creating a home here. Actually, they... The fact they confronted the lady was an interesting thing because usually what happens is they just go to the authorities above. So there's this interesting idea of home making its way into university and comfort and safety and all these things interplaying together. What are we to think about this? It's a hot topic. It's something that is really important. Living in Oxford, it's something we encounter week by week in the papers because of the university just over there. It's not just us, though, as believers who need to think this through. Just a week or so ago, um, the army released a new advertising campaign seeking to recruit, to recruit, and I quote, snowflakes, binge gamers, and me, me, me millennials. You might find that offensive. But it's interesting how one um, organization who employ a huge amount of people are trying to think through how we how they recruit people in our current culture. How do you recruit binge gamers who are great at playing online but actually don't want to take responsibility in terms of the real world and real jobs? I guess we'll see in months to come the fallout from that. But it is a live thing. What are we to think about it all? Um, the final thing to say before we jump into the passage, and I know this has been a long introduction, is that I need to be careful as someone who preaches because the message of the scriptures, although foundationally a message of grace, is only a message of grace because of our need of grace because of the reality of our sin and our brokenness. One of the books I read um, talked about, again, uh, it's in the States, but a, a, a college chapel service. The chaplain stood up and spoke on 1 Corinthians 13, all about love. And yet one of the students went to complain to the principal of the whole college because they had been made to feel uncomfortable because they realized how small their love was. Which is concerning because in part, that's why Paul wrote. Paul wants to show the church in Corinth how little their love is, how much they are divided. So maybe the chaplain got it right. What do we think about it all? As we come to the scriptures, it's worth reminding ourselves that the Bible is not sanitized. Every day, every person suffers. 
we are all sufferers. We are all sufferers all the time. Suffering is not in the small print of what it means to be a human, or indeed particularly what it means to be a believer, but it is part and parcel of our life, this side of the fall, and this side of Jesus coming back. It's not all suffering and hardship, but all of us, to some degree or another, whether physical or mental or or emotional, will experience suffering each and every day. So what should our response be? Well, um, do, if you've lost Isaiah 43, do open that up. It's in the midst of a section in the prophecy of Isaiah where God is speaking to his people in the midst of hardship. If you like, his people are not feeling safe. They are not comfortable. And so God will say things like, Don't fear, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Or he'll say things like, God gives strength to the weary and power to the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. The people of Isaiah's time were not feeling safe. And our passage in particular... Um, chapter 43, comes in the context of God's rebellious people who have turned their backs on him and are about to go into exile in Babylon. Which, of course, means, in a sense, God is not safe. We, as a people, on our own before him, because of his holiness and our sin, are not safe. But now, 43 verse 1, it refers back to 42. The verdict of the previous chapter of the people who are, have no sense of sin, no sense of God, they didn't get it and they didn't take it to heart and now they are being removed from the land. But Isaiah is speaking to the people, to the exiles, who do take their sin to heart, who do recognize the rightness of the discipline that they are about to encounter. They recognize their predicament. And their great fear is that they have lost God. And so verse 1 to 4, let me read it again. But what you see in the midst of these verses is the reality of a security from God in the midst of impending trouble. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honoured in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. God's people are about to be removed from the land, facing discipline from him. And it's worth just asking, first impression, is that how we would have responded the way that God does? Is that how I would have responded? People who had ignored him so blatantly, to the extent that he is removing them and exiling them from the land. The only discipline big enough is, is to get rid of them for a time from his place. Is that what we would have said? 
Our God is holy and pure and perfect. He is not safe, in a sense. But you see, he is so kind and patient with them. He doesn't distance himself from them. He doesn't disown them. He doesn't wash his hands of them. He, verse 1, he created them. He formed them. More than that, he has redeemed them. That redemption word is an interesting one. Just imagine, um, in the times when this was written, if you or your family had fallen on really hard times and sold yourself into slavery in order to pay your debts, which you could, well, I could come in as a kinsman redeemer, could come along with my bank balance, my bag of savings, and take up all your financial responsibilities on myself. Call your debts my debts. Pay off everything you owe, and then you would be free. You would be redeemed. You would be rescued. To redeem is to, to rescue someone or something from captivity by paying a price. And so God here says he has rescued his people at a cost. Now, actually, he has already rescued his people from Egypt, if you know the story of the Bible, many years before. He had taken them from Egypt, through the, prom- through the wilderness, into the promised land. But I think, actually, this is a later redemption that's going to come. He's going to redeem them once more, God seems to say. Isaiah the prophet knew something of what was going to happen. He knew they were going to be removed from the land. But more than that, he knew God would redeem his people again. And he's so sure of it happening, he does it in the past tense. Even before it's happened, fear not, I have redeemed you, verse 1. Summoned as his, known by name. And why would he buy his people back again? What would he give to buy them back? Verse 3 to 4, all of Egypt. Cush and Seba to his people. That would have meant something like, I will bring you home at enormous cost. I love you. You are worth it. At the expense of nations, I will rescue you from the Babylonians. If you love someone, you're willing to pay stuff for them. You're willing to splash out on them. You're willing, them to, you're willing to give them things or time or resources or money. or What's so God here? Because he loves his people. He, he would give people in exchange for their lives, verse 4 because they are precious and honoured in his sight. I'd pay anything for you, my people, he says. As Isaiah goes on, we'll see more of what that looks like. We'll see quite how much he is prepared to pay to redeem his precious people for himself, to rescue them for himself, because he's willing to pay with his servant, his, his son. That is the price he's willing to pay for his people. Redemption for the people of God will come through the death of his Messiah. He's willing to buy them back from exile. But more than that, even on their way into exile, verse 2, even then he's got them. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. This this idea of fire and water is probably not literal, but it's a picture of totality. It's whatever comes, whatever comes, you are protected and you are cherished and you are loved. The waters won't swamp you or drown you. The, The fires won't burn you or set you ablaze because why? Well, 
God's presence is with them. And so his protection is for them. Even in exile, he is still with them. Even in exile, he has still got them. Even though he is disciplining his people because they've walked out on him, he still looks after them. Which I take it is still the promise of God for his people now. It's a truth and a lesson for us as a people in a world where, where safety is such an important thing. In a world where people fear a lot. And we may have imbibed and been shaped by this overarching idea of, of safety. There's lots of good to that idea. We may feel triggered by various experiences or words or ideas, but even if that is the case, God is still with his people. He is always sovereign. He is always protecting them. If I can put it this way, ultimately we are always in a safe space because God is with us. Because in New Testament terms, we are in Christ. That doesn't mean life won't be hard. Do you remember, we always suffer all the time. But it does mean, ultimately, we are safe. And so we don't need to be so fearful or so anxious because he's got us. Like the people being sent into exile, God had them, and so he's got us. And you know, sometimes even... So we see how good he is, and so we see how powerful he is and kind he is. Sometimes to grow us, I take it he exposes us to hard things. So we realize we can't do it on our own, and we have to look to him. We have to trust him afresh. In earthly terms, sometimes he, he lets us see how unsafe we are in terms of the world around us, or in terms of the reality of our lives. So we stop looking at our lives and ourselves, and we look to him who is the, the one in whom we have true safety forever. So there's security in impending trouble, one to four. As well as that, though, there is a certainty of future hope, verse five to seven, um, ever so briefly. Okay, let me read them again. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, don't hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, whom I've formed and made. And something's just happened. Something weird has just happened because the scope of this prophecy has just been blown open. He's looking ahead, but he's talking about the return from exile, but it's far bigger than it was a few verses ago. Because people are scattered far and wide to the east and the west and the north and the south. This seems to just be more than a few people going into exile. Now, this is a drawing in of people, men and women, sons and daughters from all around the globe. Back to the Lord again. It seems to be a, a glimpse of the Gentiles. People like the majority of us drawn together as the people of God. This is not just Israel in exile. This, I take it, is the church. This is the gospel going to the ends of the earth and the people of God being gathered from all over. 
Indeed, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Look, it's those two words again. You got them in verse 1, and you get them again in verse 7. It's at either end. There's an equal footing for the people of God now who are being drawn together. And just as the command in verse 1 was, do not fear, so again, verse 5, do not be afraid. The Bible would say there are different kinds of exile that happen. But it seems to me, whenever you encounter this concept of exile in the Bible, it's always scary and hard. It's always the people of God away from home. So think Babylonian or Persian or Assyrian. Think Daniel or Nehemiah or Esther. Or the people of God in in 1 Peter, people like us. Exiles and strangers away from God in the world now. But whenever you encounter this idea of exile, The consistent challenge for them, for us, is to remember who our God is, to remember who we are in him, and so to not be afraid, because we are eternally safe, because we are precious and honoured, and because he loves us. And in a world taken up with safety and suffering, and comfort than to remember who he is and who we are is the truth we need to remember. He is good and we can trust him because eternally we are safe in him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we we see something of the reality that you are not safe because you are holy and pure and so good, and yet we are not. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus who died in the place of his people. Thank you that we are united to him by faith. And so now in him we are safe. And yet we confess to you the reality of the fact that so often we can feel anxious and unsafe, uncomfortable, concerned. Help us please to think hard and carefully about these things. Help us to remember the reality of the truth that in Christ we are safe, we are loved, we are precious, even when life is hard. Thank you that your word does not sanitize the reality of suffering. But in the midst of it, might we increasingly be a people who look to you. As Paul wrote to the church in Rome, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary love that you have shown to us and you show to us in Christ. Might we recognise the reality of the safety that we have in him, the eternal safety. Thank you that because he died and was raised again and has ascended to your right hand and indeed has sent his spirit upon us, Thank you that we, by faith, are now seated with him in the heavenly realms. Might we trust that safety, the reality of that, when life is hard and we feel anxious and we are fearful. In Jesus' name, amen.